holy shit. They literally, their eyes light up and they burst with excitement because they go, I had no idea this is where commerce had got to over the last <laughs> decade. Kiwis are more risk averse just by nature. They are more number eight wire. They are more do it yourself. And that translates even into budgets for discretionary income and retail purchases. It's a double edged sword. You know, some people absolutely love that and, and they gravitate towards it and other people hate it. And, and you know, that's what the block button is for. Welcome to Add to Cart, Australia's leading e-commerce podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast moving world of online retail. Every week, Nathan Bush from eSuite and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency eSuite. Today's guest joins us from across the ditch and describes himself as a digital native, a futurist from way back and a consultant obsessed with helping businesses do e-commerce right. Sounds like my kind of person. Jason Greenwood runs Greenwood Consulting out of Auckland, New Zealand, and he helps businesses in both the B2B and D2C space across Australia and New Zealand reimagine themselves for the digital age. In this episode, we deep dive with Jason into the state of online commerce in New Zealand, and we get some tips for Australian businesses who are looking to expand into the New Zealand market. We also cover why he thinks headless is not a smart strategy for most e-commerce businesses, the implications of Amazon entering the New Zealand market, and his recommendations for how to stand out on LinkedIn, and he certainly does that. But before we get into it, be warned that there is a little bit of swearing in the episode, so if you've got some precious little kiwi fruits with you, you might want to be a little bit careful. So thanks to our partners, Shopify Plus and Signet, here's our conversation with Jason Greenwood from Greenwood Consulting. Jason Greenwood, welcome to Add to Cart. Mate, it is so good to be here. You know, I've been watching you from afar. I'm a big fan and uh, love what you're doing for the industry. And, uh, you know, uh, we've known each other, obviously not like close, but, you know, we've known, I guess, of each other and about each other for many years. And, uh, you know, I've seen you speak at a couple of conferences and yeah, I'm a big fan, big fan. Thank you, man. Likewise, we, I had a look before we got on. We've got 1100 shared connections. So that's either we know the same people or we are on LinkedIn way too much. And I probably think it's the latter. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to think it's a mix of both, but I think I suspect you're probably right. Now, you are based in New Zealand, is that right? Yes, I'm based in Auckland. That's correct. Lovely. And how is New Zealand coping in a post-COVID world from from a retail perspective? Well, look, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's similar to other parts of the world that are sort of starting to wind back up again. And physical retail is, is you know, just as crazy as it's ever been, I suppose, to a degree. And you know, judging by the motorway that I just came off of, uh, rushing home to, to be on this uh, on this pod, uh, you know, you'd think that that we were we were 100 percent back to normal, and the motorways are just as insane as they. You know, clearly, Aucklanders have not got the memo. We're working from home, uh, and uh, so yeah, look, we're in a pretty good place, and um, uh, yeah, extremely thankful to be based here in Auckland and, and be here based here in New Zealand. Oh, it's a beautiful spot. And we're going to just drill down, I think, for, for the sake of our Australian listeners to a little bit more around the New Zealand market and what's happening there because we've seen a lot of headlines recently around Australian um, businesses expanding into New Zealand, yes. especially as the rest of the world kind of 
makes it harder to expand into. So if you wouldn't mind, let, let's drill into that for a little bit. But what have you noticed that has changed in New Zealand, especially from an e-commerce retail perspective post-COVID? Anything different to the rest of the world? Look, I think it's probably, there's some things that are similar and some things that are a little bit different. The things that are similar are the race for digital skills and expertise. It is just mental in the market. You know, wages are on the rise. Demand is on the rise. We have limited people with sufficient gray hair in this space. Like you and me. Well, I, I don't have too much gray hair yet, but it's definitely getting yeah. there. Mine's but um, look, you know, e-commerce as a practice and omni-channel commerce as a practice is still relatively young. You know, we're, we're, we're talking less than 20 years. And so the, the reality is, is that there just hasn't been a massive the industry has not had a chance to build up enough depth of bench to be able to meet the demands of all the merchants that are trying to to get e- e-commerce or omni-channel commerce enabled. That's the reality. So I guess in that sense, we're similar to the rest of the world. But you know where I think we differ is the absolutely pathetic pre-COVID uptake of e-commerce in this country, even versus Australia. So pre-COVID, we were sitting at around 9% of all retail being e-commerce in New Zealand. Australia was sitting at about 15%, UK 25 to 30%, and America some hovering somewhere around that 20% mark. So when we look at Western nations, uh, New Zealand is a backwater in terms of, of, uh, of e-commerce adoption. And, you know, so therefore we had, I, I guess, when you think of sort of jumping the shark, so to speak, you you kind of go to this place where all of a sudden overnight you have entire businesses needing to be re-engineered at scale for digital and omni-channel commerce. And, and that was a really bitter pill to swallow for a lot of Kiwi businesses who really hadn't thought about that old whole e-commerce thing very much. And if they had, they had an e-commerce solution that was maybe five to 10 years old and they and they really just hadn't paid a lot of love or attention to it. And and then when you look at the logistical capabilities of businesses to fulfill 100% of their revenue through e-commerce channels and distribution centers, again, absolute nightmare for businesses to, you know, especially omni-channel businesses where maybe historically 80% of their business or 85% of their business has been done through a store state, 10 to 15% of their business was done through e-com and through a DC and then literally overnight, the, the light switch gets flipped, and now they got to do 100% through their DC. And, and they're realizing, shit, we're just, we are just not architected, both from a, a people, process, system, technology perspective. None of it is engineered for this. And, and so you, know, you had businesses trying to stand up e-commerce solutions very rapidly where you, know, you, you had traditional, more monolithic projects that might need to go live in, in 6 to 12 months. Now people are saying, look, no, I, I need to have something live in three months or less. And of course, you have to re-educate people about budgetary expectations as well. If they haven't done an e-commerce build in a decade, well, you know, they've gone from an e-commerce build maybe costing 10 grand a decade ago to where, you know, a comprehensive omni-channel solution is 100 grand or more. And, uh, you know, especially when you talk about the full stack of, of, of the, full, the full stack of the solution back end and front end and customer experiential parts of that, it gets very expensive very fast. So resetting expectations around MVP functionality to get someone up and transacting quickly, resetting expectations about budget, resetting expectations around the need for digital capability to drive this machine. You know, there was a whole lot of education that had to happen in a pretty short period of time. But the one thing I will say is that businesses they had the resources to pour into digital unlike ever before. And they realized 
shit, this is a pretty systemic change. Sure, when things open up, we're gonna you know, go back to some semblance of normalcy, but you know, a lot of these new online customers, they are gonna be sticky to a large degree. And so therefore, the fundamental nature of our business and the channel mix has changed forever. Yeah, some great points in there. And it's really interesting that you mentioned how New Zealand was slow and how your perception of it, and and you got some great numbers in there, about 9% of retail being online pre-COVID. When New Zealand is traditionally a really creative country, so if you look at film, if you look at TV, if you look at advertising, New Zealand's held right up there in creativity and risk-taking. Yeah. Why do you think, from an e-commerce perspective, they were so far behind? I think one of the reasons is because the traditional sort of advertising and creative industries, they serve an international clientele oftentimes. So we've got We've got local agencies serving global clients and they're punching way, way, way above their weight globally. So you look at somebody like a Young and Shan, for example, or somebody like that who is just, they've got a massive global client roster, right? You know, the, the, I, I don't know what their split is between domestic and international clients, but I would say the international makes up a big, big percentage of their, of their client roster. And so you're right. I think that there's a bifurcation that's happened whereby a lot of businesses in New Zealand, they actually target international markets with their capabilities because that's where the market is. And, they, and they've kind of just written New Zealand off in many respects, and they just don't go after it because, you know, New Zealanders are known for sort of a number eight wire mentality, being able to do a lot of things themselves, you know, being able to run small businesses on their own, being able to sort of pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and, and you know, be pretty self-sufficient. You know, we're down here in the bottom of the world and have had to be self-sufficient for a long time. And so a lot of small business owners in particular, they have this mentality that I just will not pay anyone to do anything that I can do myself. Even if it, even if it's more efficient, even if it's better, even if it's faster, <laughs> if I can do it myself, I'm going to bloody do it myself. And uh, cause I just can't see spending money on it. And, and, and that mentality is still pretty pervasive. It's slowly changing, you know, and, and I'm an expat. I mean, I've been in New Zealand over 25 years, so I know New Zealand very well. I'm a dual citizen, but, you know, that is one of the key differences, I guess, when I moved from the States to New Zealand that was really obvious and apparent is that Kiwis love to do shit themselves. And that's never really changed very much. Peter Shepherd Footwear pride themselves on delivering their customers the perfect fit. Unfortunately, this didn't apply for their own e-commerce technology. Stuck on a niche legacy platform, it took the Peter Shepherd team up to 24 hours to make simple changes. It's not quick enough in today's fast-paced e-commerce world. Enter Shopify Plus. Peter Shepherd migrated to Shopify Plus, including a full POS migration, reliable media library, and an automated reporting suite. Oh, and did I mention instant updates? As a result, Peter Shepherd tripled their conversion rate and increased e-commerce revenue by 30% talk about some nimble footwork to read more of peter shepherd footwear's story and to see other case studies visit the customer section on shopify.com.au forward slash plus so how does that work with your consultancy because you work across a number of b2b and d2c organizations who have probably i imagine call you up and go jace we need drastic change. We've been doing this ourselves for so long. All of a sudden, we realize that we've been left behind. 
And you mentioned before around the budgets not being where they are, the capabilities not being where they are. Where do you start? <laughs> that that is a very very good question, and and you're right. That is the the question I usually get, and and fortunately, I tend to focus on merchants that are doing say, you know, whether they're B two B, D two C, B two C doesn't really matter. But where I can start pulling some pretty big levers for them and helping them make sustainable systemic change across their whole organization people, process, technology, brand, and data, and making sure that those are all harmonized and aligned for growth. Where I can pull big levers within a business is when they're doing about 5 million or more a year in revenue across all channels. It's even better if they're sort of already doing maybe 5 million a year through digital channels. But really, it's only at that point and over, maybe a little less, maybe 3 million. But but realistically, you know, I'm not targeting in the SMB space. I'm, I'm targeting medium enterprises and larger. I'm not targeting small businesses because the reality is, is that businesses that are smaller than that, most of the time they can go out, they can establish a Shopify store, they can get a hundred dollar theme, they can install 10 apps and they can go selling. And, and, you know, it, and they can run some Google ads and some Facebook ads. And, and if the popcorn pops and they grow and they can figure out how to rise above the noise and rise above the competition and break through, then that's where I can add some significant value to their business. But I'm not, I'm not there primarily to hold their hand from zero to three or five mil. I'm, I'm there to take them from five to 100 or 200 or 300 mil. And, and that's where my experience really shines. And so for me, you're right. Fortunately, I'm working with brands that have at least sufficient financial resources to sustain significant change over the medium to long term. That's the only way that I've been able to do it, actually, and, and, ha- and have a business that's sustainable for me. Now, where I support businesses of zero to, say, three to $5 million in revenue is through all my free content. So uh, free content, I put out, you know, my podcast, I put out content on LinkedIn, I've got a very inexpensive paid newsletter. So I try to cater at scale to those smaller businesses by putting out content that can hold their hand to help them pop as a piece of popcorn. Absolutely. Very generous with your content. There's some great stuff out there. I can really recommend having a listen to at the coalface and the newsletter. So, um, and go sign up to Jason's LinkedIn, have a look and you don't hold back on your opinions, which I love. <laughs> yeah, it's it, you know it's a double-edged sword. You know, some people absolutely love that and and they gravitate towards it, and other people hate it. And and you know th- that's what the block button's for. So that that's cool. You know, <laughs> I I don't set out to be offensive or I don't set out to be divisive. I guess just when you have strong opinions on something, that's the sometimes the the, the outcome. That's just kind of where the cookie crumbles, I guess. Yeah. So if you're going into a business and it's that 5 million plus and they say, Joyce, we need help. We, we, we need to transform. What would be your first question? Uh, I say, show me your data. So, data? So, the, so, the, so the first thing that I will usually get them to show me is the state of their product data and the state of their customer data. That's the first thing. And then I'll beyond that, I will then start to unpick the systems they already have in place. So do they have an ERP or don't they? What does that look like? How old is it? How mature is it? How complete is it? How well implemented is it? I look at, do they have a CRM? Don't they? Do they have a marketing automation uh, platform? Or don't they? Do they have a CDP or not? Do they have a PIM or not? You know, what is the channel mix that is currently doing well for them? How are they attacking those channels? How are they doing in those channels? And how are they servicing those channels, both independently as well as collectively. I really look at what is the current state of where their business is at 
And to be honest, probably 80 to 90% of the time, we have to fix data issues before we can do anything else. So oftentimes their data, particularly product data, is just not in a fit state for digital channels. It's just not ready. It's, it's, it's maybe particularly in B2B and, and, and maybe D2C channels where they historically have used BDMs or account managers or sales reps, field reps, whatever, to sell their product. They've used almost pause or ERP level data to do that. And their data is an absolute debacle when it comes to anything you'd want to show to an end consumer through a self-service channel. And that, that's kind of where we start. And is it organizing the data or is it creating the data? It's both usually. So like I'm working with a client right now who I went in and they had about three or four different product data models that they were running in their ERP. And we needed to, first of all, make the data model consistent across all their products. We then had to set about making the attributes and the attribute model consistent across all products. Uh, And then we had to really pull out what are the commonalities across products that we then can surface in a meaningful way to the customer on the front end journey to support the buying process. And it's an ongoing process. We're not 100% there yet, but we're probably 80, 90% of the way there yet. And even, you know, even their parent-child relationship in pr- between products in their ERP was not consistent. And I said, well, we, we, we can't surface this in a meaningful way to the customer until we have this data in a good place. Yeah. And what's the quickest win that you usually find when you go into an organization? Is there something that consistently comes up that you go, look, this is a quick win. Let's get on with it. And we'll get this win and then we'll move on to the bigger stuff. Yeah, look, I think one of the things that is a big win, particularly in B2B environments, is that all the progress we've made in B2C e-commerce over the last decade in terms of systems and technologies that bring along with them embedded processes and embedded organizational design uh, allow B2B businesses to adopt these technologies quickly and at scale uh, and transform their business because we've gone through the pain of this over the last 10 years of B2C. And so I'm thinking of things like personalization. I'm thinking of things like search and merch. I'm thinking of things like loyalty. I'm thinking of things like CDPs and PIMs that are coming into their own, particularly in a a B2C space. And even marketing automation and and a whole lot of other things. And customer service is another one. Omni-channel customer service systems, things like Gorgeous, things like Hero, things that are, you know, were originally designed primarily for B2C merchants, but those systems bring with them such amazing abilities to transform the customer experience, like just by turning it on. And it's relatively inexpensive to turn that tooling on. When you go in there and you talk to these businesses about all the changes that have happened over the last decade in commerce, and they go, holy shit. I, I just, you know, they just, they, they didn't even know. They, they, they literally, their eyes light up and they burst with excitement because they go, I had no idea this is where commerce had got to over the last <laughs> decade. <laughs> that makes sense. And I love the whole issue. We're te- definitely taking that as a uh, grab for the intro of the show. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, sound bites are good, right? <laughs> sound bites are brilliant. Um, if we bring it back to Australian businesses looking to enter New Zealand, because we we obviously have a great relationship there and we've worked with a fair few businesses who are looking to expand into New Zealand. What do you find that businesses entering New Zealand are often surprised by? Price sensitivity of Kiwi customers. That's probably the single biggest one. Australians, we find, are less risk-averse. They're willing to take bigger chances. They have bigger budgets for everything, including technology. 
They've been really fast adopters of things like buy now, pay later, and really fast adopters of, of, of new commerce technologies, new channels, marketplaces. Australia, I think, is probably the most advanced market in the world right now around the sheer scale of marketplace business in Australia. It feels like a new marketplace opens up every week in Australia. It's like uh, I, have a, I have a sort of a, a saying around this is just another marketplace. When, whenever I hear a new announcement out of Australia about a new marketplace, okay, you know, uh, Jan, just another marketplace. So it, 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 it's just so funny how Australia has really carved out its place in the world on the world stage from a technology and a marketing and channel mix perspective. And New Zealand is still a little bit behind. And as a result of that, Kiwis are more risk averse just by nature. They are more number eight wire. They are more do it yourself. And that translates even into budgets for discretionary income and, you know, retail purchases. So what brands oftentimes find when they come into Australia is they have to create a subset of their catalog that is really market suitable for the, for the New Zealand market. And they won't necessarily send all their catalog into the New Zealand market because it just won't sell as well. And then the other thing is weather. So Australians have fucking amazing weather for the most part. New Kiwis don't. We have shit weather for the most part. And, you know, so, you know, that is a massive difference when if you're a fast fashion brand, for example, and you're going to try to bring Gold Coast type clothing into New Zealand, you're going to struggle. And that's why, you know, brands like MacPack and Kathmandu have done so well uh, in New Zealand because they've really tailored their product range for the Kiwi market and the outdoors, the rugged outdoor space, the mountainous space. We have a different buying demographic. We have different personalities. It's a different culture. And as a result of that, and even different preferred payment methods, like in Australia, PayPal is massive. It's one of the top payment methods in the whole country. PayPal, fucking Kiwis don't use PayPal, hardly <laughs> ever. They, do, they just don't use it, uh, you know? And, and with buy now, pay later, Kiwis are starting to, you know, get mm-hmm. into the buy now, pay later space, but nothing like the Aussies. The adoption rate has been glacial compared to the Aussies. And those are some of the really big mm. differences. And I guess the, l- l- there's less competition, particularly among the, amongst the logistics space in New Zealand, particularly if you're coming from Aussie into New Zealand and you're doing cross-border commerce into New Zealand, 99% of the time you're going to be using New Zealand Post. Because yeah. that's that's what can get to every destination in the country, and you know via courier as well as standard postal mail. And there's fewer options. There's less competition here, and so yeah, those those are some of the probably the biggest differences when you're looking at, at coming into the New Zealand market. Is we just have a different mindset, different market, different weather. Those are the keys. And there's also the whole, and this might not even be a big thing, but there's the whole address thing, right? The whole address format is so totally different. To Australia. Yes. Yes. And even phone number format is completely different. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that's why, you know, I usually recommend something like a locate or one of those third party services instead of using Google Maps, because even in Australia, Google Maps is pretty shit uh, yeah. when it comes to addressing and quality of addressing or using a service like QAS or something like that that can, you know, embed, uh, you know, whether it be through an app or a custom integration into your website so that you can have. That address to auto-suggest and auto-complete that's actually based on the local postal services address database. And when you do that, it means that the likelihood of unsuccessful deliveries and therefore returns decreases markedly. So 
while there's an incremental cost add to run those services, it truly is almost incomparable to the pain that you will have if you don't get good addresses for your customers. Yeah, that makes sense. That was a really interesting observation you made around marketplaces and how in Australia, we just accept marketplaces as one of the key pillars of e-commerce, but for the rest of the world, it's emerging or it's a bit... Eh. Yeah, whatever. And I've always hung on to that New Zealand, you know, trade me was always the, the marketplace. Is that still the case? Yeah, they, they are the dominant marketplace here. Although having said that, obviously the market is is doing very well here, particularly amongst new goods and direct market brands who want to sell direct to consumer via a marketplace. You look at the guys over the over the market, you know, some of the top minds in Australian and Kiwi e-commerce have set up that business backed by the warehouse group with infinitely deep pockets. They've done a very, very good job at, at taking market share from trade me. But at the bottom end, on the secondhand goods market in particular, Facebook market is taking it to trade me. And my fiance, for example, she buys and sells a lot on Trade Me or historically did, uh, and now does almost everything through Facebook Market. She she oh, wow. she just uh, she doesn't use Trade Me, you know. Uh, she uses a fraction of, of what she used to. So Trade Me still does well in things like vehicles and and very very specific verticals that they just own. And obviously they've got Trade Me jobs and they've got a couple of other verticals that they absolutely dominate. But certainly their grip over the last five years has weakened unlike we've ever seen before because of new market players coming in and really disrupting their entire business, to be honest. You know, on the high end, brand new goods and direct to consumer, we've got the market and on the low end, we've got Facebook. And and that that has changed the game for TradeMe. And look, are, are they still ridiculously profitable because they haven't rebuilt their core platform in ever. Yes, they're ridiculously profitable. And yes, they will continue to throw off obscene amounts of cash for the foreseeable future. But are they now unassailable like they used to be? Absolutely not. And there's definitely chinks in their armor now. There's so much fun stuff that can happen in warehouses. Ad hoc games of cricket, team dance-offs, practicing next level parkour. So when winery Team Unico found out that they could reclaim 90% of the packaging space inside their warehouse by switching to Signet's Fillpack TT Paper Void Fill, they jumped at it. As opposed to packing peanuts, Fillpack TT is flat-packed and fully moldable to easily fill all sorts of packaging voids. And unlike parkour, it's a smart use of space. Visit signet.net.au forward slash blog to find out more. What did you make of last week's news about Amazon starting to deliver to New Zealand and New Zealand customers from Australia? Yeah, well, look, I think the only precedent we have to look back on and compare it to is when eBay tried to do exactly the same model about 10 years ago. And it may have been longer, maybe more like 12 or 13 years ago. And they failed miserably and, and, and were sent packing by Trade Me back to Australia with their tail between their legs. Now, the fundamental, there's some fundamental differences now that I think will make Amazon's entry into New Zealand more successful. One is at the time, one of the reasons why eBay did so poorly was because their site was so slow. And of course, broadband wasn't that common. And so, and so high performance internet here was, was really pretty rare. And their site was, was just glacially slow as a result. Whereas trade me, because it was built during the dial up era, it was lightning fast. 
And so, and so performance was never an issue with trade. It was very, very fast, always from the beginning. So not only was, was trade me the first to market, but their site was just geared towards get that transaction done and get it done easily and quickly. Find the product you want, put your bids in, put your auto bids in and get it done. Unfortunately, eBay, because their code base is such a, frankly, a clusterfuck, they've always had problems with their UX. They've always had problems trying to rewrite that and build out apps on top of it and everything else. And, and that was, you know, most, most pundits worldwide didn't really attribute it much to the performance. The performance was abysmal in New Zealand. And so Kiwis would try it. And frankly, the range wasn't great for Kiwis. The range wasn't as good as it was in Australia. Pricing wasn't that great. Freight was expensive. So there was a whole lot of reasons why that whole cross-border thing didn't work. And of course, because eBay wasn't doing its own logistics at that point, uh, and it had no middle mile services to offer merchants, basically it was left up to merchants to sort it out. So we, we had a major, major barriers to entry, unlike anything we've ever seen when eBay tried it. Amazon largely doesn't have to think about any of those issues because their performance is amazing. They have tons of their own logistics capability and, of course, about ready to open up the largest automated warehouse in the Southern Hemisphere in Sydney later this year, dominate the middle mile, dominate pricing, dominate range, and you have a ready and willing merchant-based Australia now wanting access to the New Zealand market via Amazon. Now, do I think that this is where Amazon will stop? Absolutely not. They also haven't announced whether they're going to bring Prime to New Zealand. Obviously, Prime is massively successful in Australia. It's helped to drive the underpinnings of their growth, and, and I don't think Prime gets enough credit for that, to be honest. And I think if and when that is offered to Kiwis, and if and when we have local logistics and a, even one local warehouse in New Zealand and a local domain, I think that changes the game even further. So I think this is a test by Amazon. And look, they love Western markets. They love English-speaking markets. They love to leverage local assets to the max. And they always start out slow, and then they always end up dominating. So Kiwi retailers better watch out because Amazon is now the 800-pound gorilla living on their doorstep. And what's your gut feeling around customer sentiment in New Zealand towards Amazon? Is it generally favorable? Look, I think like as in a lot of other parts of the world, people speak out of two sides of their mouth. They, they, out of one side of their mouth, they say Amazon shit, it treats the warehouse people shit, it pays shit. You know, they don't allow um, unionization. They kill small business. They, uh, they compete with their merchants. They sell direct against their merchants. They use their data against them. They're a frenemy at best, you know, and oh, we would never support them but yet we see Amazon's growth numbers. So I, I think people talk a lot of shit, but I think their behavior says something differently. And you know, we've, we've seen the stratospheric growth of Amazon in Australia, despite the, the likes of Catch, despite the likes of eBay, despite the, li- despite the likes of Kogan, despite the, the, the likes of the, the, the new um, Bunnings marketplace, despite the Meyer market, we've seen Amazon take it to the market in Australia, uh, I don't think many people gave them as much credit uh, that they would ever get this far so fast. But if you've been watching them behave elsewhere in the world, you know this is absolutely their modus operandi. So I think that whilst Kiwi's out of one side of their mouth, they're going to say Amazon is shit and we won't support them because we don't like Bezos. The reality is they're going to buy, buy wherever. Kiwi's love a deal. Kiwi's yep. love a deal. And if they can get something they want at a cheaper price, they're going to do it. 
it's the sneak effect. It's it's the 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 momentum that that Amazon's built up here in Australia is just incredible. And they don't do it with big launches. They do it little little introductory features here and there and there. And all of a sudden, they've got twenty five percent of Australians signed up as Prime members who go to Amazon as default for their shopping. And you go, how did that happen? Because it's not a big fuss. It's just That's slow, slow and steady. Inexorable is the word. Yeah. Now. I am looking at your backdrop and it is just incredible. And you mentioned a skill shortage in New Zealand. If you were early in your e-commerce career and you went, wow, I would love to set myself up in New Zealand in e-commerce, what skills are in most demand? Pretty much anything to do with digital and e-commerce. <laughs> so whether that be, you know, if you're a creative, then obviously orientating your career around creative endeavors and design all of the design elements, UX, UI, marketing design, marketing creative at scale is in big demand, particularly with the, the, the impending death of third-party cookies and all of that. You know, targeted acquisition, really good retention-based marketing, CLV-based marketing becoming you know, increasingly in demand, which means you have to treat customers better than we ever have had to treat them historically because historically e-commerce treats customers as disposable, unfortunately. That's that's the reality. That's just being honest because acquisition historically has been so easy and cheap that it's created bad behavior by merchants. And unfortunately, it's going to take a few years for that bad behavior to go away. Obviously, if you're highly technical and you're quite analytical, then anything to do with data analysis, data engineering, BI tooling, you know, becoming expert in BI, um, whether that be through something like a Glue.io or, or Google Analytics, also anything to do with kind of tag manager or tag-based implementations, which are, you know, particularly from a data layer perspective, are more complex than they've ever been. And especially with GA4 and everything else, massive opportunities in that space. You know, so data scientists, data architects, all that stuff, very good. Anything to do with CRM marketing. So anything to do with retention-based marketing and being able to segment customers based on behaviors and based on technology that allows you to segment unlike ever before. That's a really in-demand skill. And then uh, obviously technical chops. So, you know, dev chops or like me, I'm a hyper-technical non-developer. So I'm a non-developer, but I read API docs and I understand all platforms that I deal with. I understand them at a really granular technical level so that I can become a senior, you know, now, now at this stage of my career, I'm a senior solution architect across pretty much every platform that I deal with. And, uh, you know, started out as kind of more of a BA level, you know, business analyst level of expertise. And then over the years, as I've architected on more and more platforms, it's grown into more of a full spectrum solution architecture skill. Big demand there, both front end and back end development. And obviously in a SaaS world, when we talk about back end development, we're not talking so much server side stuff. We're talking more app and integration based development and, and also custom front end logic based development. So anything to do with React, anything to do with JavaScript, anything to do with microservices, anything to do with APIs, all massively in demand. So pretty much if, if you have a skill or an interest and, and, and the same with copywriting, if you're creative and you like to write copy, then obviously the demand for really high quality SEO friendly copy and product uh, data management and then, of course, just pure digital marketing skills. So understanding how the mix of both transactional, transactional and digital marketing channels work together uh, to deliver uh, all the way from consideration all the way through acquisition and, and remarketing. If you can understand that and you can understand the psychology of buyers, there's just going to be almost infinite demand. So it almost doesn't matter what your natural inclination is. The digital equivalent of that is in demand. 
Yeah. And are you finding that New Zealand businesses are open to remote and flexible work or is it very much an office mentality? Uh, you know, pre-COVID, I would have said it was very much an office mentality, but COVID has definitely changed, albeit slowly. There's still a lot of businesses that, that now they're sort of forcing most employees back into the business. But I tell you, that is going to be a major attractant for top talent is A, your willingness to hire remote both outside of New Zealand and inside of New Zealand, people that want to telecommute versus physically commute. And, you know, when even on the North Shore, you know, I'm in the northwest of Auckland and even to get to the North Shore of Auckland is a 40 minute drive, which is not that far. It's like, you know, 15K down the road, 20K down the road. When we're talking those kind of commutes, at least flexibility around, hey, Two days, you know, Monday and a Friday we're in the office, but Tuesday or, or, or maybe Monday and Friday we're out of the office and Tuesday through Thursday we're in the office or some blend of that I think is going to become very much the norm over the next decade. And certainly hiring remote talent, especially on a consultancy basis, is becoming much more acceptable. I mean, in, even, even in other countries outside of New Zealand, like, you know, I just signed my first international client in Ireland recently. So I deal with a lot of, obviously, I, I consider Australians local, local clients, but, uh, you know, outside of, outside of my immediate region of ANZ, you know, I just took on an, an Irish, large B2B Irish business. And um, they found out about me through LinkedIn and reached out to me and had a meeting with the CEO late at night, my time, my first call with them. And within two days of that first call, you know, they had signed a contract and paid their first invoice. Brilliant. So, you know, it, it, it happens, right? And I can't let you go. And you've given us such a great overview of the New Zealand market and where it sits right now. But I can't let you go without you giving us your top tip for standing out on LinkedIn because you do it so well. What would you say to people who want to use LinkedIn as a platform to really get their personal story out there? Wow, that, that's a tough one only because I don't have any great hack for you. But the one <laughs> thing that I think for me has made me stand out is the fact that I'm prepared to take very controversial positions. So I have strong opinions based on experience or what I like to think is based on experience. And I'm not afraid to share those, even if I know they might be slightly unpopular or not on trend. So, you know, for example, you know, I've gone against the headless train, you know, everybody's saying headless, 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 headless. And I'm, I've been one of the very vocal few, very vocal people in the market saying 99% of merchants don't need to do headless and they definitely don't need to do it right now. It's immature. It's going to cost you a lot. It's going to take a lot of time and you're going to lose a lot of the benefits of SaaS platforms while you're at it. And that's a very unpopular position to take, but it also positions me, I guess, hopefully in a way as a thought leader around my position because, because I back that up. I don't just issue a throwaway statement. I document why I mm. believe that's the case and I'm willing to have that debate or discussion with anybody who believes otherwise. And so I guess that would be my one piece of advice is don't be afraid to take strong positions that you believe in, even if you think it kind of goes against the grain. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you're still doing there is you're still offering value to people. It's not like you're just throwing this out there and going, this is my opinion, take it or leave it. It's like, no, I'm willing to discuss it. And I think the same, the same happens for people who take LinkedIn so seriously. And sometimes it's easy to stand out on LinkedIn. If you do things just a little bit differently, make it funny, make it you know controversial, just don't try and just because it's a business platform doesn't mean you've got to put on a suit and tie and be the most boring person in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, and I, look, I think also brands in particular are really bad about not unshackling 
their team members to be vocal. So they've got lengthy social media policies that basically scare everybody in the business to death to where they, they, they aren't themselves on social media and they, and they basically just uh, repost what their CEO or what their CMO has posted on LinkedIn and then, they, and then they give it a thumbs up on the repost <laughs> and that's the sum total of what they do. And I think so. I think brands have a lot to answer for in that regard. And I think that you know, homegrown Lexer uh, out of Melbourne is a really good example of a brand who has unshackled their team to be extremely vocal about what they're passionate about on LinkedIn. Uh, and it's still very relevant. And it's still very educational. But man, the personality of their team members sh- shines through in their posts. And it's funny because I talked with Nick uh, at Lexer on my podcast and, and I said, what do you guys do to get your people to be so vocal about their passion, which yeah. is your business. Uh, you know, do you pay them? You know, what, what is it? And then he just said, no, we just, we just, you know, we just hire really passionate people that, you know, it spills over and we don't, we don't have really tight policies around that where we're going around and policing what they do and say. And so therefore they feel like they can just be really vocal. And, you know, so that, that right there, I guess, is an example of an Australian business doing it well when it comes to empowering their teams to, to do great social things. I thought it was just in the cool merch that they had. Well, yeah, they do have some pretty cool <laughs> He's merch. They it. do have some pretty cool merch. They do have some pretty cool merch, I got to say. That's awesome. Jason, you've been so generous with your insights and your time. Thank you so much. What's next for yourself and Greenwood Consulting? I know that you've just picked up that first international contract. What are you really focusing on? Yeah, look, it, it's more of the same in the sense of, of B2B and D2C merchants, but I'm also going all in on my content game. And, you know, I'm speaking in Queenstown at Retail Global New Zealand. Now that the world's starting to open back, I used to speak at probably two to three conferences a year pre, pre-pandemic. And I'd like to get back to that, to be honest, because I do like the speaking circuit. I really enjoy it. I have a lot of fun meeting with industry people and and hopefully bringing new insights to the table. So I want to do a lot more of that over the next 12 to 24 months, get back into that, you know, doubling down on, uh, on, on the, the newsletter and the podcast. And look, I've loved your, you know, you've upped your consistency game. You're putting out, I think about three podcasts a week at the moment. I, I, I don't think I can, I don't think I can catch up with you. I don't think I can keep up with you at that pace, but I've committed to one episode a week, every single week, Drops on a Thursday, religiously, 11 a.m. New Zealand yep. time. I'm going to continue that up, uh, you know, and then just see where, where the next content opportunities emerge. But I'd like to eventually, like in a perfect world, I'd probably get to a place where I only take on maybe one or two consulting clients per year to stay sharp. But mm-hmm. then I'm focusing much more on content and education and, and speaking at yep. conferences because that's, that's pr- my true love. My true love is really educating people and producing content. That's what I really, really enjoy doing. You can make such a big difference at scale that way, can't you? Well, you know, obviously speaking in person doesn't really scale that well either. But but yeah, look, it's, I, you know, uh, you know Gary, I have to give Gary Vaynerchuk some credit in that whether you love him or whether you hate him, in early 2018, I was listening to him and, and I was pretty into him, especially at the time. And I was sort of listening to every piece of content he put out. And he just kept hammering home. Well, if you think you're such a fucking thought leader, 
put your thoughts out there and let's see. <laughs> let's see what the market thinks. You know, put your money where your mouth is and actually start putting your content out there for open critique. And if you're not doing that, you're not a fucking thought leader. And, uh, and you know, he basically said, get off your ass, pull finger and start putting content out there because you've got no excuse. If you've got a phone, you've got no excuse. And I have to give him credit for kicking my ass so consistently. Every single piece of content I saw from him, he just beat on me to the point where I find like, okay, okay, I'm going <laughs> to start producing content. And, and I've been consistent ever since. And I, so I got to give him credit for that. You're going to be known as Jason G of the uh, e-commerce world now. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Something All right. like that. <laughs> now, how can you've got so many great resources out there? Now's the time to direct people to where they can get more of Jason Greenwood. Where can people go? LinkedIn, obviously, first, I, I put out more content there than probably anywhere else. It's, it's been a really good platform for me. Uh, really like the sort of business focus of the platform, works really well for my audience, and then they seem to love it. Uh, obviously, at the Coalface podcast on every podcast engine pretty much on the planet, at the Coalface Digest, you can Google that. Uh, it's, it's the premium newsletter if you want to sign up. It's dirt cheap, in my opinion, and it's just, it's, it's a, it's a no brainer for anybody working in the industry, in my opinion, but obviously it's up to the, up to the people to make up their own mind. Uh, and then, you know, I, I do do a little bit of stuff across Instagram and a few, and, and a little bit of, uh, stuff across, uh, YouTube and Facebook, but my focus primarily is LinkedIn podcasts and, and newsletter. That's the big three. Awesome. So much great stuff out there. Thank you so much for sharing your insights today, Jason. It's been awesome talking to you. Mate, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, man, I'm a big, like I said, I'm a big fan and I love all the work you're doing and and all the content you're putting out too, man. I think between the two of us, we've uh, we've got ANZ pretty well covered. One day we'll get the two to unite once this uh, bubble's back in place. Totally. Looking forward to it. Can't wait to see you again in person soon. (laughs) You too. Thanks, mate. Cheers, man. Bye. So even though Jason is so well connected across both Australia and New Zealand, it was so great to get the chance to dive into the world of just New Zealand e-commerce with him. And what did I take out as the main differentiators between Australia and New Zealand? My top three would have to be that one, Kiwi customers are more price sensitive. So you need to really think about your range and your pricing strategy before entering the market. Don't assume it's just a copy and paste from what you've done in Australia. The second thing that stood out for me is around the reliance um, of marketplaces in Australia. It never really stuck with me how ingrained they are in our psyche and that that may not carry across to New Zealand as well as it does here. And the third thing is that Jason touched so much on how there is so much opportunity for growth and development in the New Zealand market. It's still early stages. They may be a little bit behind Australia, even with the great uptake after COVID, but still so much opportunity over there and it is not too late. To finish up, I have three resources for you. Firstly, if you're a first-time listener of Add to Cart and you want to stay up to date with new episodes, head over to addtocart.com.au and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter. We'll let you know every time a new episode drops as well as giving you my three takeaways from each episode and a link to the transcripts so you can know that this is an episode that you want to dive straight into. Secondly, if you want a weekly roundup of the best e-commerce case studies, tools, and research, sign up to the High Five Friday newsletter, which is delivered to inboxes at 8 a.m. every Friday morning. I read all the e-commerce news and send you the bits that I think you can take action from. Sign up at 12high12high.com. 
www.hifive.com.au forward slash hifive. And the last thing, if you are looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, head over to esuitetalent.com.au. We are a dedicated e-commerce talent agency connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands. Check it out, sign up to the email and get in touch with me if you want to discuss your next move. Until next time, thanks for listening and keep those customers adding to cart. Music.